0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, is visiting Madison on Friday in an effort to get out the vote ahead for Democratic candidates of next Tuesday's election, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Madison is one of many stops Sanders is making in swing states where he's putting his energy into mobilizing youth voters. Although Sanders endorsed Democratic candidate Mandela Barnes in the U.S. Senate race, none of Wisconsin's candidates will attend Friday's event. Sanders is scheduled to speak at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Madison on Friday at 8 p.m. He will also make stops in Eau Claire and La Crosse earlier that day and then will head to Oshkosh on Saturday.
0: Wisconsin hospitals made $4 billion last year, up 84% from 2020 thanks to federal COVID-19 relief funds, stock market increases, and a steady stream of patients, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The Wisconsin Hospital Association released its findings today, reporting that during the first half of 2022, the state's health system saw operating margin losses of 0.4%, signaling emerging financial difficulties for them. Throughout the state, staffing shortages are driving up wages, while inflation is raising the cost of medical supplies, mirroring national trends. Although the majority of the state's hospitals operate as nonprofits, they must maintain operation margins sufficient to secure loans and invest in services.
1: The Madison School Board approved the district's 2022 to 2023 budget last night with a 6 to 1 vote, the Capital Times reports. Nikki VanderMeulen was the only board member to vote against the budget after the exclusion of her amendment to create a timeline for increasing hourly wages for custodial staff. The new budget totals almost $580 million, up from around $515 million last year and around $483 million the year before. Part of the budget will cover a $5 per hour raise to hundreds of hourly staff members in the district, an initiative approved in September. Despite increased spending, the tax rate will decrease due to more state aid and expanded tax base. The rate decrease will translate into a reduction of $62.16 for an average household in the district.
0: With Halloween now behind us, it's time to curb carved pumpkins. Madison Streets Division's crews will collect pumpkins as well as other compostable decorations such as corn stalks and hay alongside leaves and other yard waste. All non-compostable items, including candles and electric lights, must be removed from these decorations. Residents only receive three curbside collections for yard waste during the fall. Madison residents can also bring pumpkins and other waste to one of the Street Division's drop-off locations. Residents can check out the Street Division's yard waste website at cityofmadison.com streets to determine when to set holiday debris out for pickup. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Municipal budget season is well underway, and last night, Madison's powerful City Finance Committee discussed several amendments, including two that would increase raises for some city employees. But while most city staff will be seeing a higher raise next year, Alders will have to make do with what they have, at least for now. WRT producer Nate Hout has the story.
2: The city's finance committee met for almost six hours last night to discuss the 2023 operating budget, approving a move to raise pay for some city employees while shooting down a raise for alders. Along with discussing a slew of other budget amendments, the committee voted four to two, approving a pay increase of three percent throughout the year for the almost 1,400 municipal employees not covered by a union. While city police and fire employees are still covered by a union, the majority of city employees lost their collective bargaining rights in 2011 under Act 10. Because of that, the city reports that non-union city employees have seen pay increases at around 6% below that of union employees. Under the amendment, the pay raise, which is usually given out in January, will be split into two raises, a 2% raise in July and another 1% in October. The city estimates that by 2024, the increase would cost around $3.1 million. Some alders raised concerns about the pay increase, saying that the city is already looking at a budget deficit over the coming years. Council President Keith Furman, who voted against the amendment, says that he's not convinced the wage increase will benefit workers in the long run.
0: Um, ultimately, the state does not provide the city with enough revenue. Um, our costs to continue services continue to increase at a rate much more rapid than our ability um, to raise revenue. As federal government funding runs out that we got uh, through COVID, as the costs continue to increase and we don't have as many tools to use, a lot of those um, options are running out, and um, we're going to have to make some incredibly serious decisions in the next few years about how to bridge that gap.
2: But Alder Sherry Carter of District 14 argues that the city's budget has always been tight.
3: I think the bottom line is our municipal employees and government employees deserve to have a raise and deserve to have this gap shortened in in a matter that is relatively soon versus relatively long.
2: Another amendment discussed at last night's meeting would have raised Alder's pay to $34.80 an hour or a yearly salary of around $37,000. Currently, city alders make $13.77 an hour, or around $14,000 a year. The idea to raise alders pay has been discussed by the council for years. The city's task force on the structure of city government, or TFOGS, first formed in 2017 and released a comprehensive report of the council in 2020. That report, among other things, recommended making city alders full-time employees and paying them at least $45,000 a year. But that idea was shot down by Madison voters in a non-binding referendum last year, along with most of the other TFOG's recommendations. The pay raise was brought forward again by Council President Keith Furman and was co-sponsored by Alders Juliana Bennett of District 8, Nikki Conklin of District 9, Grant Foster of District 15, and Vice President J.L. Curry. Alder Furman says that the pay increase would help make the board more equitable and allow people who are not as financially stable to be able to afford to live off the salary of an alder. New Alder Sabrina Madison of District 17 says that raising the wage would only help to encourage more people to run for council.
4: I would have not been able to apply to serve in this role had I not had a part-time executive assistant and now full-time staff in my date job. And so if you think about what is the value proposition to pay folks a little bit more to spend some time to serve the city, um, you would just end up with people who are not financially strapped in order to give back and serve the city.
2: But Alder Tag Evers of District 13 says that the current alder wage is enough to bring diverse voices to the council.
0: Because let's be honest, we're the most diverse council in the history of the city of Madison right now, without any pay raise, without any structural changes. That's the reality. So if we talk about gatekeeping, how traditionally marginalized folks FOLKS LIKE ME, HOW CAN WE GET THEIR VOICES TO THE TABLE? I I WOULD SUGGEST THAT IT ALL STARTS IN THE CAMPAIGNS. If we're being really honest, that's the gatekeeping, who you align with, the clicks you come into contact with. Ultimately,
2: that amendment deadlocked on a 3-3 to vote, meaning that it won't be included in the Finance Committee's budget. It can still be added by alders when it goes before the full council during budget week, which kicks off on November 15th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Woogie
0: after local public health officials investigated complaints of rats in the east side neighborhood of Madison, they found obvious signs of an infestation, including fresh burrows, tufts of fur, and obvious food sources. WORT reporter Abigail Evans has more about the root causes of this infestation and what you can do to prevent it.
5: Public Health Madison-Dane County, the local public health department, has found evidence of a rat infestation in the Emerson East neighborhood on Madison's northeast side. Well, not only a nuisance, an infestation can also cause property damage and the possible spread of a disease. John Hosbeck, a PHMDC Environmental Health Services Supervisor, says there are three conditions that make an environment more friendly to rats.
4: There were many other properties that had one or more of the three things that we were that I mentioned before: either food, shelter, or safety that would help sustain a a rat population.
5: Hospek adds that with easy access to food, shelter and lack of predators, it's easy for a rat population to take off. Ronesha Strozier, who is also an environmental health services supervisor at PHMDC, says the presence of food sources can make an area especially appealing to rats.
3: In this case, we don't really know what caused the issue, but we do know that it is a good environment in this neighborhood for rats, because you have the fruit bearing plants, You have the chicken, the leftover chicken feed. The city recommends additional
5: ways to get rid of outdoor food sources, such as using tight-fitting lids on garbage cans and compost bins, keeping pet food inside, and picking up pet waste. Another way to attack the problem is to take away rats' homes by doing things like stacking firewood off the ground and away from buildings and cutting bushes, vines, and tall grasses that provide cover. Last Thursday, local public health officials had a public meeting to address the rat issue. At that meeting, several attendees asked if the city would be doing anything to help trash pickup to prevent future rats. Strozier made it clear at the meeting that the city cannot narrow down the issue to one cause. It's not just the compost. It's not just the chickens. This is just a really good, healthy environment
4: for rats.
5: Hosbeck said the Health Department and Building Inspection Committee are working together to address any future rat complaints, but residents should do their part to prevent rat infestations. Hosbeck says it's pretty simple to mitigate.
2: If you limit the amount of food they can have, limit the places they can live, and make things unsafe for them, meaning not giving them places to hide or, you know, run through to...
5: And Hosbeck recommends that residents in this neighborhood check their houses thoroughly. He also recommends residents use kill instead of live traps to prevent rats from escaping.
2: Getting the, the neighbors to all work as a team, support each other, and play their part that's when the, it's going to be more successful.
5: This is not the first time the rats have infested Madison. In 2019, residents of the Ecken Park neighborhood on the north side reported seeing rats near their homes. After an investigation, city officials found a no mo area of wild vegetation to be a root cause. Reporting from WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins.
0: It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: In school board meetings and libraries across the state, there has been an anti-LGBTQ push by both organized groups and individuals in recent years. From anti-trans school policies to book bannings, it's not a coincidence that this rhetoric appears right before an election. That's the focus of the newest story by Wisconsin Watch investigative reporter Phoebe Petrovic, who spoke about what she found with WRT producer Nate Buggehout earlier today.
2: Last month, self-described theocratic fascist Matt Walsh gave a talk on a transgender film over at UW-Madison, drawing transgender-supporting protesters and far-right activists to the campus. It's part of a larger movement across the state as anti-LGBTQ rhetoric enters sleepy school board meetings and libraries. That's the topic of the Wisconsin Watch story, Anti-LGBTQ Rhetoric, Royals Wisconsin, Providing Political Fuel for the Right. Uh, That's written by investigative reporter Phoebe Petrovic, who uh, joins me on the other line right now. Phoebe, thank you for talking with me.
6: Thanks for having me.
2: So, just to uh, sort of start things off here, Phoebe. So, here in Wisconsin, this all started with a DPI document titled, or maybe I should say, say, restarted with a, a DPI document titled uh, "Resources for Gender Expansive Preschoolers." So, that, that seems like a good place to start with this interview. So, what 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 is that document, and sort of uh, where is that document actually from?
6: Sure. So, this document was sort of the seed of. Um, of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric entering the gubernatorial race, specifically in Wisconsin. Um, So this document is a handout that was given by a presenter at an early childhood education conference back in 2018, according to the DPI spokesperson. Um, It's been on the website. Um, just as sort of a thing that's available if someone wants to avail themselves of the information. Basically, it's like a two or three page document that's got um, stories about transgender children, some some videos, um, some books for adult learning, some books for child learning, um, some supportive LGBTQ organizations. Basically, if there's a transgender child who needs some support, this is where parents, educators, students can turn. And uh, what's notable about this, this is from 2018. I don't know how long exactly it's been up on the website, um, but the Daily Caller, which was founded by Tucker Carlson back in 2010, um, co-founded, the Daily Caller picked this up in September of 2022 and ran with it, sort of basically explained it um, within a day or two. Michaels had weighed in, claiming that... um, governor Tony Evers was using our public schools to indoctrinate three-year-olds with radical gender ideology. That's a quote. That's a term specifically favored by the far right and anti-trans activists. Um, and then the Wisconsin GOP chimed in by the end of the month, there was a similar claim circulating on televisions in a Republican, um, or in an attack ad against Tony Evers paid for by a PAC affiliated with the Republican governor's association. So, um, This is just a document that provides resources, information for children, recognizing, you know, that there will be some transgender children in the public school system. But instead, it was passed off as a curriculum. Um, The DPI does not create curricula in Wisconsin. That's done at the local level. And it was also falsely passed off as indoctrination, sort of forcing children to become transgender when merely it was providing information resources.
2: And so now th- this is all sort of part of a larger sort of nationwide anti-LGBTQ push, specifically looking at uh, children across the country. Uh, and Wisconsin has not really been spared of that, uh, specifically in school board meetings uh, across the state. So wh- what can you sort of tell me about that? What sort of actions are being taken at at school board meetings?
6: Yeah, so overall, this is this not, this not only school boards, but we found... Um, conflicts regarding LGBTQ inclusion in at least 21 communities around the state and many of these happen at school boards. The main themes that we're seeing from school boards, and there's a lot of great local reporting about this when it happens Um, are concerns over gender identity policies that the school may have. And these are specifically policies that allow students to self-identify their name or their pronouns if that's changed from what they showed up to school with. Um, And then the question uh, at issue has often been whether or not parental consent is needed um, or if they go by the students. And that's based in safety concerns, concerns. Opponents will say it's based in parental rights, things like that. Um, the other big thing that happens, that's been happening in school boards, um, are pushback to gender identity curricula or human growth and development sex ed curricula. Um, so this has been happening in Superior, over um, uh, in the southeastern part of the state as well, the suburbs around Milwaukee, um, and there's been a conslation, in lots of these instances that a, that a sex ed curricula that identifies, you know, that, that states the reality that there um, there are transgender people that sometimes assign sex at birth and um, gender identity differ, um, that that is inappropriate, that that's sexualizing children, um, all sorts of things. So it's those two main pushes at school board meetings, um, you know, parents um, concerned parents, also activists with larger groups that have ties to national networks coming in and saying, um, we have a problem with the school's gender identity policy or we have a problem with um, the school's sex ed curricula or human growth and development curricula.
2: Now, on the topic of groups with a sort of a larger network, let's talk about the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or Will, who they've sort of played a, a big role in uh, spreading this sort of rhetoric across the state. Tell me, tell me a little bit about them and the the groups that they are aligning themselves with.
6: Sure. So, Will at this point has four active LGBTQ-related lawsuits in the state of Wisconsin. Um, Three of those are challenging school's gender identity policies, which we just talked about. The other one is challenging uh, the City of La Crosse's conversion therapy ban um, for minors. And the legal arguments that Will is making is that that these policies and the conversion therapy ban, you know, they infringe on parental rights, um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Um, And specifically in two of the school-based lawsuits in Madison and Kettle Moraine, I believe, um, Will is suing with uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom, which is considered a Christian nationalist juggernaut. That's a quote from um, this book, The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart. Um, So Alliance for Defending Freedom is a massive Christian nationalist, Um, legal advocacy organization that has been one of the premier architects in anti-LGBTQ or, you know, in efforts to um, sort of advance claims of religious freedom over um, policies that would require um, inclusion of uh, LGBTQ people um, sort of, you know, for years. Um, ADF is considered a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, because it has supported criminalizing gay sex, sterilizing transgender people abroad. Um, It has said on its website um, that uh, gender identity or the acknowledgement of that is a, quote, existential threat to society. Um, And ADF is part of this sort of national massive architecture um, pushing or movement pushing anti-LGBTQ or what's considered to be uh, by advocates anti-LGBTQ policies or laws across the country. So um, they're connected with that first sports ban in Idaho, I believe. Um, and, you know, anti-trans sports bans uh, have proliferated across the country. Um, so they're, they're really huge national players in this space, and they have a lot of money. So the Madison-based Center for Media and Democracy estimated that they raised more than $78 million in 2020.
2: So now, Phoebe, we're sort of coming up against the clock here a little bit. Do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you think is really important out of your story that you want people to know?
6: Yeah, so a professor at UW-Madison named Finn Enke says that this sort of manufactured moral panic, and that's what it's described as by all my sources, a manufactured moral panic about transgender people, specifically trans kids, is very much tied to the election, that these sorts of things rise and fall with election cycles. Um, Right-wing activist Christopher Rufo was very explicit that he is using anti-LGBTQ Concerns, specifically quote unquote gender ideology um as a playbook as a political tool to help republicans win in the midterms um and the important thing that everyone reminded me and you know the trans kids uh, and youth that I spoke to ri- reminded me of is that they're you know they're caught in the middle of this transgender youth lgbtq youth their friends families um are hurting from this rhetoric
2: I've been talking with Phoebe Petrovic, an investigative reporter with Wisconsin Watch, on her latest story on the rise of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric uh, here in Wisconsin. Now, we just sort of scratched the surface of this story here, so you can read it for yourself over at wisconsinwatch.org. Phoebe, thank you so much for talking with me here today.
6: Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to The Local News on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. On this week's Cardinal Call, producer Hope Carnop spoke with Drake Whiteberge, photo editor for the publication, about the history of Freak Fest and why the fest was absent this year.
7: They said that FreakFest was just kind of one of those things you stopped by for a little bit, made your appearance, checked out some of the costumes, and then you left.
8: Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by photo editor and features writer Drake Whiteberge to discuss the past and future of Freakfest and Halloween in Madison. Thank you so much for joining us, Drake. Thank you. Can you start by explaining what Freakfest is and why it's been canceled in the past three years?
7: Yeah, so Freakfest was a, a Halloween festival, Halloween party on State Street. Every Halloween, uh, starting from 2006 until 2019, the city and Frank Productions uh, would bring in musical acts, Uh, they would barricade off the streets, Uh, they would charge uh, partygoers entry, and then they would come on in, uh, listen to the music, party in their costumes. Before 2006, uh, it was just an unregulated, kind of like a free-for-all out on State Street. It had been going on since roughly... Uh, the late 1970s uh, and had slowly gained traction over the decades. Until the early 2000s, there was uh, large-scale riots and chaos and people were breaking into State Street businesses and uprooting trees and lighting fires and the riot police would have to get involved. So after uh, then-Mayor Dave Cheslovich uh, took office in 2003, um, you know, he was a witness to these uh, these events, so he founded Freakfest 2006 uh, in the first year to kind of like stop the chaos of uh, these earlier Halloween parties on State Street all up until 2019. Uh, and then in 2020, uh, Freak Fest was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And in 2021, it was canceled again. In 2022, however, uh, it was still canceled, but not due to COVID. It was canceled uh, because the city didn't want to sponsor it anymore. Um, Frank Productions pulled out of sponsoring the event. Um, they no longer wanted to uh, bring in musical acts for it. And there's Overall, there was a lack of interest in Freakfest later on in its lifetime. uh, The closer you got to 2019, uh, less and less people were going, uh, less interest in it overall, and um, the city decided it wasn't worth it to to keep keep, uh, doing the festival.
8: You talked to Alder Juliana Bennett who represents part of the campus area for this story. What were her thoughts about the cancellation, how it happened, and did she propose any other ideas for Halloween weekend on State Street?
7: Yeah, so Alder Bennett was upset that the festival was canceled. Um, when I spoke to her, she said that she thought the festival was a good way to keep people contained um, and under the watchful eye of, you know, like the police officers and stuff like that during Halloween. People drink, people, um, you know, get up in their costumes and go out and party on Halloween. Um, so she figured it was always a lot safer to have it under a controlled environment where if people started acting out, um, behaving outwardly violent or hostile or belligerent while drunk, um, you know, there'd be people there to, uh, especially police officers, to kind of like stop it from getting out of hand. Um, but now that it's canceled, there's, you know, nothing, there's nothing to stop that. Uh, so she was upset that the, that the city had canceled it because of those reasons. And also the city, she had told me that the city had, had never uh, contacted her about canceling it prior. It was only after they canceled it. Um, or right before they canceled it, that she was told that it was going to be canceled. So she was, she was upset uh, about that. She did say that the city should have, or technically still could, bring in other musical acts. She emphasized local musical acts um, instead uh, to provide some sort of alternative programming for people on Halloween who don't want to go out and party and get drunk and go find house parties or party on State Street or something like that. They could instead go to these lo- local musical acts um, support local businesses that are hosting or nearby to these acts, and provide a more uh, family-friendly, kind of social, um, less drunken, possibly less dangerous uh, event for people on Halloween.
8: Can you talk a little bit more about the history of Halloween celebrations throughout the years, specifically the crowd sizes that might have hit State Street on that weekend or weekday?
7: Yeah, so... When I spoke to former mayor uh, Dave Cheslovich, he he was uh, really instrumental in letting me know about like, kind of these crowd sizes. And the way he explained it was that in, in the 1980s, the crowds had grown to uh, very large in size. And then over the course of the 90s, early to mid-90s, they had kind of gone down a little bit. Crowd sizes weren't as big. There wasn't quite as many people going out. It wasn't quite as wild. Um, but then by the early 2000s, the crowd sizes had really started to... pick up again. Um, In 2003, I believe, uh, 65,000 people went out on uh, State Street. In 2005, the highest year, um, or the year with the most people who attended, uh, 100,000 people came to State Street over the course of the weekend. However, in 2006, the first year of uh, Freak Fest, the crowd sizes had uh, gone down to about 35,000. So, you know, roughly a third of what they were the prior year. Um, and then you know, over, over the course of the years, in 2015, um, it's still 34,000, so it's still about the same as when it started, but in 2017, it had gone down to about 19,000. Uh, and by uh, 2019, the most recent year of the festival, uh, the crowd size had leveled out to about 20,000 people.
8: You talked to an alumna who attended both the unofficial and official activities around Halloween. What did she have to say about the difference between the two?
7: Yeah, so I spoke to Samantha Garay. She graduated in 2007. Um, Her freshman year was in 2002. And so she told me she attended every year between 2002 uh, and 2006 when the festival began. She said that, that the first few years she attended, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004, that those years were more fun than in 2006 during the first year of the festival. She said, you know, there's people out on State Street, people partying, people were excited, people were happy. Um, you know, you were free to enter the street and leave and do as you pleased. Um, and overall, she said that it was a very fun experience. Um, she herself said that she didn't see very much or any of the um, you know, chaos of later in the night on those days, but she had an overall positive experience of the event. Uh, in 2006, when she attended, first year of Freak Fest, she said that the event almost felt less unique. Um, there was barricades up, there was police presences, uh, you had to pay to get in, and overall it felt, her phrase said, I believe she had said that it felt, you know, more commercialized, I think was the word she had used. And it just didn't feel the same It didn't have the, you know, free, you know, communal aspect the prior years it had.
8: Prior to the cancellation of Freak Fest in 2020, what do you think were the student opinions about Freak Fest and do you think that means anything for the potential future of the event?
7: From students that I had spoken to uh, who attended um, prior to uh, the cancellation of 2020, they said that Freak Fest was just kind of one of those things you stopped by for a little bit, made your appearance, uh, checked out some of the costumes and then you left. Um, Juliet Still's uh, UW Madison senior uh, that I interviewed, uh, she said she attended her freshman year in twenty nineteen. Stopped by, um, saw the crowds were huge. She couldn't move very like anywhere, and so they, she left. I believe she said after about twenty minutes. Um, really just stopped by, checked it out, and left. Um, and that was the general general feel I, I got from other people as well. Now that the festival's been canceled, uh, I can't quite confidently say you know what'll happen. You know that's. We can predict all day, um, but there's no way of uh, truly knowing. Former Mayor Dave Cheslevich, uh, he said that uh, he believes it'll take you know a few years before um, the crowds start to get big again. As he had said, you know, in the '80s the festival had peaked and then kind of dipped in the '90s and picked up in the early 2000s again. So it could very well be you know the festival is in a dip right now, and sometime in the near future, you know, not necessarily this year, but maybe next year. In the next 10 years, the festival could pick up steam and get very big again.
8: Did you learn anything interesting by going through newspaper archives for the story, including our own Daily Cardinal archives?
7: I did. I've, in, in the course of my research, I found some articles um, from the early 2000s. Uh, specifically, I remember the one from November 3rd, 2003. You know, I'm a, I'm a photojournalist, uh, I'm the photo editor of the Cardinal, so I take special interest in photography. And on the front page of the Cardinal issue of November 3rd, 2003, there's a photo of a line of riot cops on State Street, uh, just kind of like menacingly standing there. And it's, it's, it's a very visually interesting um, photo. Halloween in 2003 was, uh, you know, I think I'd mentioned before, it was very wild. People uprooted trees and lit uh, bonfires. The police had to deploy pepper spray uh, to clear people out of the street. They had started at one end and worked their way towards campus, I believe, um, to get you know so-called rioters off the street uh, in the er, you know late night, early morning hours of Halloween.
8: Is there anything else you'd like to share about your story?
7: I'm just excited to find out you know what happens this Halloween. I, I personally, I started school in 2020. I've never experienced a freak fest. You know, I, uh, I'd like to know what it's like. I'd like to, you know, see people out on State Street and Halloween in their costumes. Um, So I'm I'm just interested, you know, after reading all about, you know, uh, Freak Fest or the State Street Halloween Party in the past, I'm just interested to see, you know, uh, how it turns out in the future.
8: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Drake, and sharing your reporting with us.
7: Thank you, Hope, for having me on.
8: That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
0: Have you ever wondered how many animals go through the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Rehabilitation Center every year? Future contributor Jackie Sandberg has and breaks down these numbers on a new Wildlife Weekly.
3: My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today I want to talk about our most common species that are released from our wildlife center. And also, how many animals has that been? Because that's a really cool question to ask. Uh, We are a huge wildlife program and we are probably the third largest in the state of Wisconsin, um, where we have many urban centers around us. We have Madison, heavily urban. We have Milwaukee, another heavily urban area and then also green bay probably the other most urban area we have three very large wildlife centers in those areas so here is dane county humane society's wildlife center we have wisconsin humane in milwaukee and we also have bay beach sanctuary up in green bay we also have programs in a couple other parts of the state that are also relatively large we have the raptor education group incorporated in antigo wisconsin we have the Cooley Region Humane Society up in Alaska, so that's in the La Crosse side. And we also have places like Wild Instincts in Ryanlander, and we have the Manaqua Northwoods Wildlife Center. There's a lot of ours around here, and many of our, our animals are brought in depending on location and, and how close they are to a rehabilitator. But we definitely get a lot from out of county outside of Dane County. And because we see so many animals that are out of county, I always wonder to myself, okay, we see all of these admissions coming in and where they're coming from. About, you know, just as an example, 82% of our songbird window strike admissions coming from Dane County, you know, but how many of those animals are released, you know, back out into the wild, back out into our county, maybe to the surrounding counties. And I thought it was a really amazing thing to look up that Over 8,000 animals have been released since about 2014 or so. So it's actually 8,519 animals uh, released successfully back into the wild. So I think that's a really great number. Um, But what was the most common species? Well, it was the eastern cottontail rabbit, which I'm not surprised by at all. That was over 1,500 eastern cottontails, 1,400 mallard ducks. And for wood ducks, it's been more than 380 some. We've seen eastern gray squirrels. That's in the 700s. Robins, over 500 robins. And almost close to that total, common snapping turtle, 526. so, you know, I know that seems like you know those are pretty large intake numbers and we do see you know typically 3000 or so animals a year coming through but as wildlife rehabilitators we know that a good you know potential 50% of our patients might be coming in extremely critically injured and so you know our job as rehabilitators is to assess that animal and decide you know are you even a candidate for rehabilitation or is our job maybe to help relieve pain and suffering, potentially through, you know, humane euthanasia or placing an animal. And if we're calling just like a strict release or release rate, we're talking about the animals that we actually kept in rehabilitation. We went through the whole process of giving them warmth and care and fluids and medications, uh, surgery, um, you know, physical therapy after surgery. All of that is a long process that can take up to, you know, typically... Longest is about six months for an animal, but getting that animal then back out into that wild is a hard job in general. So to be able to say that more than 1,500 rabbits have been released in the last few years, that's great information, I think, for us. I think ducks are very high on our list because they're pretty easy to rehabilitate, which is nice, but not every duck is easy. I like to think of mallard ducks as relatively easy to rehabilitate, but you have to be very, very careful because they are susceptible to getting used... To people if you are going to be too close to them or interact with them for too long. They're very, very different than our wood ducks, which are probably one of the hardest species to rehabilitate because they're so scared and they're so quiet and they're just very, very different than mallard ducks in terms of their species behavior, their natural ecology. So they're actually one that is probably for, for us in the top you know, 2% of those that I would consider the hardest species to actually successfully get to release. So you see those numbers, you're like, okay, I'm surprised by a few of them, maybe not from others. You know, I think of our songbirds. We know that American robins are the most common species that we're going to see here at our Wildlife Center. And and to be able to say how many of them have gotten released and knowing that we've banded lots of them, it's really great. Hopefully we get some information, you know, over the future years to see how many of those have, you know, been spotted in the wild or returned with a federal band on. So I'm not surprised to see American robins are one of the, the highest numbered for release. Uh, house finches of 300, just about 300 to house finches. That's also a very common songbird species that we have here and morning doves, definitely over 200 morning doves. And I, that's also, you know, not surprising considering how many of them come in due to window strikes and as babies as well. What I think was more surprising were to see some of the less common species are pretty high on our release list, ones that we don't see very often, like barn swallows, for example, almost 100 barn swallows being released in the last couple of years. That's, I mean, that's pretty significant to say, you know, we may only get five or 10 or so a year, but to know that we have released uh, about 100 in the last couple of years, I think that's significant. We've got cedar waxwings is very high on the list, also almost 100 of them, and uh, even goldfinches, not really... One that we see a ton of, we see a lot of them in the fall period, but when you kind of count up the number that we've successfully treated and released and you see, oh, 75 birds in the last couple of years, that's that's pretty good. We've got also uh, some species like our 13-line ground squirrels and chipmunks. If you put that t- together, you're well over 150 of those little guys. I thought that was kind of surprising. I think that's really neat. And then also ruby-throated hummingbirds, you know, over 40 ruby-throated hummingbirds being released back into the wild, that just melts my heart, makes me super happy. But, you know, even just talking about the top species that we are releasing back successfully, I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's a really good feeling. It's really nice to know that these animals that are living in our communities, living in our environments, you know, if they're sick or injured or hurt, people know where to take them. We're able to really have that success of being able to get them you know, back out to be successful individuals. And that's all about what wildlife rehabilitation is about. So I look at this list and I see how many different species we work with, how many hundreds and thousands of animals get to go back out back to their homes and know that we really do make a big impact in the community in some way, whether it's just through the individual rehabilitation of these animals or thinking about the thousands of phone calls we get from the public every year. It's about six, 6,000 phone calls a year. And You know, we really get to help them giving folks advice, talking about their wildlife situations. So, you know, I think of every person that calls and says, hey, I found this nest of baby bunnies. If they're able to keep those bunnies there with the care of their parents and those bunnies are healthy. I have now prevented six healthy baby bunnies unnecessarily coming into wildlife rehabilitation. You know, those are the types of numbers that really should be also included in our release statistics because, you know, they might have shown up with bunnies at the doorstep and we would have had to say, hey, can you put them back? And we do that all the time in the spring and the summer seasons. So I think a lot of public education is going out through, you know, things like you know, looking at our numbers, talking about what animals we see, how many are released, and then also just giving information to the public about what's normal, what's not normal. And that's really just the mission of our program as wildlife rehabilitators at Dane County Humane Society. So just a little quick radio segment today about what are the top species that we release here at our Wildlife Center. I want to thank uh, WORT for uh, sponsoring our segment here on you know regular basis and getting to talk about wildlife and what we do here in the Madison area if you ever have a question about wildlife if they're sick injured orphan you're not really sure don't know what species it is give us a call at 608-287-3235 otherwise this is it for today and thanks for listening to wildlife weekly
1: now 6.53 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, host Melissa Morris opens up the history books to learn more about how humanity has tried to make sense of the universe.
4: Ever find yourself sitting and thinking about our place in the universe? Don't worry, you're not alone. Welcome to A Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today I'm going to talk to you about the history of the universe, or should I say the history of what humans thought our universe was. It turns out that's actually really complicated because, well, there's a lot of humans all across the world who had a lot of thoughts on the matter. So we're gonna go on a whirlwind tour. Now, people like to say astronomy is one of the earliest and oldest sciences. After all, the sky has always been there, and human beings have always been gazing upon it in excitement and wonder. Patterns have been made of stars in the sky all across the world that told exciting tales about things going on. But what did people think about what was going on in the heavens? What did they think was out there? One of the earliest and most well-known recordings of any kind of model from our universe comes from ancient Greece, from Aristotle and Plato in the 4th century BC. When they gazed upon the heavens, they noted the moon, the sun, and some planets that all moved relative to the stars that lay far beyond those. Seeing this, they devised what is known as the geocentric model for the universe. In this model, the Earth is a sphere and is at the center of the entire universe because why wouldn't it be? We're here. Everything else, the moon, the sun, the planets, and the stars, all orbit around us in perfect circles. Aristotle and Plato's model was fairly straightforward, but didn't do a great job of describing the motions of the planets. So, a few centuries later, in the 2nd century AD, Ptolemy thought... This model is neat, but I should try adding a few things to it. While he kept the overall idea behind the model the same, he added some small details that tried to account for things like how the seasons change and did a better job of modeling planetary orbits. He admitted that his model was primarily mathematical, but that it did a decent enough job of predicting orbits, so it was widely accepted. In fact, geocentrism actually came in handy. While we now know it's not how our solar system is structured, Ptolemy's model provided a basis for a few important discoveries. Islamic astronomer Al-Battani used Ptolemy's model to carry out a series of incredibly precise measurements in the 10th century AD that rivaled those of European astronomers that they would make nearly five centuries later. He was cited by many astronomers such as Copernicus, Brahe, Kepler, and Galileo. You see, al was able to determine the length of a solar year to accuracy within 2 minutes and 22 seconds using the geocentric model. He was also able to finally explain annular solar eclipses, eclipses in which only part of the sun is obscured by the moon. However, not all Muslim astronomers of the 10th century AD were on the same page as Ptolemy, for there was one huge disagreement. You see, in Ptolemy's model, the Earth was entirely stationary. Ptolemy worried that if the Earth was rotating, there should be really big winds, right? However, astronomer al siji proposed that the Earth rotates along its axis, and many other astronomers of the time agreed with this model. This led to competing models to Ptolemy's, many of which came from Muslim astronomers in the 12th century. However, the basic idea of a geocentric universe was still widely accepted and unchallenged. That is, until the year 1543, when an astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus published his work that introduced the idea of an entirely different universe, one in which the sun is at the center, and the Earth and all the other planets orbit around it. Thanks for listening to Radio Astronomy, folks. This is Melissa Morris wishing you a stellar week.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline re- writer this evening was Kirsten Britt billings
1: Your reporter was Abigail Evans.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal.
1: Super Dave Lawrence and engineer of the show.
0: Nate Wagehout produced this newscast.
1: And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News podcast and subscribe at your favorite podcast library.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night you. <laughs>